Welcome to the BioCharisma Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Gardner. Today, we have the symbolic studier himself, Mario Garza. I absolutely adore this man's work. There's a, It's been a very long time coming that we've had this interview, this talk. I've uh, been circling around his... his uh, sphere of friends and studies for quite a while. And the one thing I've really been appreciating of his work is his, I guess you would say, he's not just a solar worshiper. <laughs> that's the best way I'll say it. That's the that's the way I'll tease our interview. Um, there's so much going on with this realm and what the cosmology of this realm is. And Mario does it better than anybody talking about the symbol the symbology of the constellations and and some of the great, greater archetypes that are running in our life. And uh I love it. Uh you know me. I'm I'm all about this type of work. He uh has dove in enough to know and has such a keen eye for art to pull out some finer nuance to some of these things that I've definitely glossed over in the past. And um, I really appreciate his work. Like if I'm ever <laughs> just r roaming through YouTube and don't know what to watch, I go to his channel and just bone up on all my archetypes because <laughs> he's got it down. And plus his YouTube page, which is Symbolic Studies, is visually the best that's out there when it comes to these types of things. He keeps everything short, concise. You can tell he does this on a professional level. Um, it's beautiful. It's so well manicured and done. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy it and I will see you on the flip side. Mr. Mario Garza of Symbolic Studies. Welcome to the BioCharisma Podcast. How are you? I'm solid, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, wonderful. So I just recorded a whole introduction, just singing your praises about, one, your art. <laughs> like I, your level of professionalism with your YouTube page and like the all the symbols that you put up, the way you do your videos, how clean and clear and to the point you are is to be commended many thanks yeah um i i want to be you know as kind of straightforward as possible with my videos and i think some of that actually came from film school because the guy i took a screenwriting class with he really emphasized keeping things short concise just like get rid of the fat and and you know uh keep what's great about the storyline and kind of leave everything else. And I feel like that kind of transferred over once I started making presentations and videos and things like that. So I like to keep it nice and short for people and deliver a lot of information. 
I don't even I don't know your background. Could you could mm. you could you fill me in on like what what your profession is and what you like your whole thing? Yeah, yeah, you got it. So I've been a graphic designer for about 20 years now. I started learning Photoshop in high school. So I remember I think I had my first copy when I was like 16. I'm 39 now. And I was fortunate enough to go to a charter school, I suppose. And nice. so half of the day I went to uh, this school, learned graphic design, met other people who were interested in graphic design. And it was such a beautiful thing because already in high school, I already started designing flyers for friends' bands and shows. Mm. And, you know, I started doing t-shirts and like album covers for friends. I was really connected to the music scene in central California, mm -hmm. a lot of punk and hardcore and metal stuff. And then it just naturally transitioned into me getting other clients, um, I guess, in the music industry at the time. Eventually, I found myself moving to Portland, Oregon. So I relocated to the Pacific Northwest. I went to film school for a number of years, and I continued doing design work. And I found myself working with bigger clients. So I've done stuff for uh, Intel and Nike and Adidas and things like that. And over time, I just got really interested in symbolism. And uh, in film school, actually, I found out that I had kind of a knack for decoding, I suppose. And I really enjoyed the process of looking at other people's projects and um, basically breaking them down of like, what did this scene mean? Uh, what did it mean when he said this or that? You know, what does this color palette say? Um, how can you kind of refine your editing decisions to be more effective and things like that? Ooh, I, and I that have, was, I have to ahead. ask you, I have to ask you, sorry to interrupt. No worries. I, you know, I, I, I'm an interrupter. I, I apologize. <laughs> Do you have any directors that like you just with the their art and the style in which they do their films that you just always gravitate to like who who do you love in that realm right that's a great question for a long time i answer my go-to answer uh, was stanley kubrick yeah and so stanley kubrick i thought was the man i remember seeing 2001 a space odyssey um for the first time in my 20s and it blew my mind and he actually kind of the catalyst to actually uh, get me to sign up for film school and so wow. i was like wow this guy made this in the late 60s this is absolutely incredible the first time i tried to watch it funny enough i couldn't complete the film yeah <laughs> so i started it too late everybody knows it's a quiet movie but um kubrick i really like the shining the shining is still actually one of my favorite movies of all time mm -hmm. i really appreciate Werner herzog as well i think he's uh fantastic and so he has some uh, absolute gems in his filmography. And so uh, many other directors, too, many other films that kind of like are one off sort of uh, creations by people that maybe they didn't have a, a, a long career after that. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I, I definitely schooled myself in my 20s with trying to absorb as much as I possibly could, you know, from the 50s, 60s on up, you know, mm -hmm. to, to the current era. Um, with filmmaking and, and what people were creating and stuff like that. But those are the two answers that kind of come to the top of my head. Wonderful. Are there any shows that you watch with you and your lovely wife? Do you guys watch any shows that visually, like from an artistic perspective, like really grab you? You know, that's a tough one, I would say, because we have only really had a few series that we both 
um, gravitated towards and really bonded over. Mm -hmm. And for us, I don't know what the thing is, but it's hard for us to find a show that we really click with. So we've tried to watch, as an example, like Twin Peaks so many times. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, David Lynch, I think he's interesting too. But we've tried to watch a number of series and um, for whatever reason, many of them just don't click with us. But I do, as far as um, you know, TV shows go, I think I'm more attracted to the scripts, actually. So I think mm-hmm. the screenwriting is really interesting. I like the medium of television because you can build a character over the yeah. course of like years, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're getting so much out of uh, just that universe that I really like that. So it took me forever as an example to get around to the Sopranos and like the wire and things like that. But, um, those series, not so much visually, but, um, more so in terms of like, uh, character creation and, and world building and things like that. Those, uh, those two really did something for us for sure. That's wonderful. So yeah. sorry, I had to take you on that tangent. Yeah, no worries. I always like you can tell so much by about somebody by the art that they consume. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I completely agree, for sure. So, um, so during my my time at film school, I feel like I really understood that symbology symbolism was something that I really wanted to study more, you know. And several years before that, I started buying books on symbolism, so symbolic reference books and things like that. And it's actually a really fun sort of hobby to get into. I remember one time I just went on Amazon and I bought like probably like 15 books on symbolism for Mm -hmm. not that much. You know, they were used. And over time, I just got really familiar with the symbolic sort of landscape, I suppose, Um, the different authors that are out there, the different books that are kind of considered classics and whatnot. And at some point... A friend of mine who is a coder asked me if I wanted to help him design a tarot website Mm -hmm. to give readings uh, using software, using code. So he had built the um, back end for one of the bigger tarot reading websites out there, which is located in the Pacific Northwest. And he said, I would love for you to to design it since you're a, you know, seasoned uh, designer and everything else. He goes, but if we're going to design this together, if we're going to create this tarot website together, he goes, you need to know something about the system of the tarot. I said, fair enough. So he went and purchased like a dozen books on the tarot, gave me a couple to borrow. And once I opened my first book on the tarot, I thought I understood symbolism just kind of intuitively by being an artist and by going to film school and things like that. I was so wrong. I realized that I I really didn't know that much. Mm-hmm. And from there, I started purchasing tarot decks. And then it was just a whole thing where the tarot opened me up to astrology, opened me up to aspects of psychology and color theory, mythology, mm-hmm. numerology, all of these different things, the elements and magic and kind of occult history and stuff like that. And so, um, funny enough, it came through that, the proposal of this project that really got me interested in some of this esoteric stuff. That's awesome. So do you have a favorite tarot deck? Like, do you, do you draw cards for yourself? I do. I do. Yeah. Um, right now I'm using a deck called the Golden Art Nouveau. And so it's kind of like <laughs> a writer, <laughs> it's like a writer weight clone. It's, it's fairly new, but it's beautiful. It's so gorgeous. Uh Um, But I really like the classic decks. 
personally, mm-hmm. kind of like the bigger decks that have influenced the whole entire landscape. So I still really like the Rider Weight. I think there's a lot of value in mm-hmm. the artwork and with what they're kind of encoding in the cards. I really like the Marseille deck, which is a classic deck. I like the Thoth deck as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the Solabuska deck is really interesting to me too. So a lot of my preferred decks are kind of like the bigger decks that are out there. Um, I'm not really that into a lot of the newer decks or the themey sorts of decks. Um, a lot of the earliest decks that you can actually get um, are the ones that I tend to rely on the most when I'm decoding things. I really so, like um, the fourth generation feminism. Uh, <laughs> I heart, uh, you know, Yoni worship goddess <laughs> deck. That's that's my personal favorite. That's my go to. Is it? Is that a real deck? <laughs> no. <laughs> I was gonna say. I, I've just lived around so many, yeah. uh, so many people that uh, are into all that type of thing that it, it was just so funny. I'd go over to like clients' houses and I would see like this new deck, and it was always like really, really marketed towards the woman, like towards the oh yeah, towards the the gentler sex, and uh, it was just so funny to see like the the skewing of archetypes because like i I have i have a little bit of knowledge when it comes to uh symbols and archetypes especially from the astrological I Ching side of things and um so when i would see these decks and i would just like peruse through it and i was just like oh my goodness this is this is marketed so well to the to the wounded female it's like it, it doesn't get better than that well put. Exactly right. 100%. Yeah, there's actually, I don't live in Portland, Oregon anymore. Uh, I'm like an hour east. And um, there is a huge tarot symposium, though, that happens there every single year. And from what I've heard over the years, it's like one of the biggest tarot gatherings in the country. There's a few conferences that are pretty big. This is one of them. And so I've gone a handful of times. And the decks that they sell, I mean, it blows my mind that this is being produced and people are purchasing it and everything else. And they're just getting wackier and wackier seemingly every single year. And they're really losing kind of that core of what I think the tarot was intended for, or they're losing at the very least a lot of valuable symbolism because Mm -hmm. they're just kind of having a free for all, you know, there's gummy bear decks and all sorts of themed decks that I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't care for, but yeah, you, you get it. So with the tarot, like with some of these classical decks, um, how much of the Maseroth and the in the the sky clock do you think is actually encoded into those decks? And you can pick right. a few a few specific decks if you want to make a direct comparison in your mind. Right, right, sure. Um, I think quite a bit actually, and I think that when you're really looking at say an example would be like the star card. The star card corresponds with Aquarius. And mm-hmm. I think that when you're looking at the cards that have been traditionally associated with the sign, and this is a whole big sort of uh, debate with some people of like appropriate correspondences. And that's right. a thing with symbolism in general, you know, and really um, the thing that I've learned over time is that any symbol that you might be trying to decode or understand or integrate there's endless correspondences mm-hmm. for it. That That's how symbolism kind of works. And so this is kind of hard for some people to wrap their head around. 
Um, but I think when you're looking at a lot of the cards that have a traditional correspondence, like the star card with Aquarius, I think what you're actually seeing is an expression of that sign itself. You're seeing a visual expression that's different mm -hmm. from the constellation itself and what it's known to re represent. Uh, but I found that to kind of be the case. And so when I see the chariot card, as an example, I see that as an expression of cancer. And when you look into cancer esoterically or Aquarius esoterically for the star card, a lot of the things match up. You know, a lot of the things are, are completely integrated, um, not with all of the decks, especially a lot of the newer decks. But I've been surprised personally to see how much is actually there. Um, but I kind of have this appreciation for what I think might be perhaps the oldest sky clock, uh, which is the uh, northern sky, essentially, you know, mm -hmm. Ursa Major, Ursa Minor going around the pole star. And I found that that is also in the tarot, too, which I did not expect as well. Um, I Where bring is up that? the star card. Yeah, I bring up the star card because... I believe uh, from all my research and, and just with, with everything that I've put together that the star is the North Star. And so it's really interesting when you look at the moon card, obviously, there's no question or debate what moon we're talking about. Same thing with the sun card. It's, it's our sun. But with the star card, there is a conversation to be had about, well, what star is it exactly? Is it all stars? You know, some people say it's Sirius. I think it makes a lot of sense that it's actually the pole star. It's Polaris. Um, and funny enough, the star card, the moon card, and the sun card, to me, represent the three main symbolic traditions that um, I, right now, am, am decoding and researching and everything else. And so mm -hmm. it seems to me like um, the sun card is symbolic of the current symbolic age, which is a solarized age. I think we live in a solar sort of paradigm right now. Most people do at least. Previous to that, it seems like a lot of people were following lunar cycles. And of course, there's still religions and, and you know, cultures and stuff like that who follow a lunar calendar. So all of these symbolic traditions have existed all at the same time. But it seems to me like there is a current sort of symbolic age, the, the sun age, or the solar age or the solar order is right now in place. Um, and then previous to that, again, the moon or lunar symbolism. But previous to that, I think that um, it was more so what I refer to as a stellar tradition. Um, sometimes I call it the polar tradition or the northern tradition. Mm -hmm. And that we're dealing with the central star in the heavens with the star card. And that symbolic tradition, the stellar tradition, is way more feminine. And it has way more to do with the night sky. And so to me, it's really interesting that in the star card, you have a nude woman who is preparing a ritual bath, right? Mm. Under the stars. And there is one star in the heavens, generally surrounded by seven other stars, right? Ooh, so this is- There's your dippers. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, exactly right. Mm -hmm. And so it's fascinating too that this star- it's a nice big star, but when you look at the older decks and you compare the star card, the moon card, and the sun card, um, the star card, its star is 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 large, but it's not uh, super radiant. The moon is a little bit more radiant, a little bit more, um, I don't know, there's, there's just more of a glory to it. It definitely mm -hmm. pops more. And then the sun card is the most radiant, right? It's the most um, brilliant. And so you go from this star to this larger moon to this larger sun, and you go from a woman at night who's nude, very vulnerable, mm -hmm. again, preparing this ritual bath um, to 
a child on the sun card. And to me, when I just look at all these cards, uh, these three cards in a row, I'm like, this is so fascinating because to me, if we do live in a solar age right now, it's the youngest age. And so isn't it interesting that uh, we have a young child on it. To me, there's a symbolic correspondence there that mm. this is the most recent age. It's almost like a baby, you know, compared to the stellar or northern or polar tradition, which is much, much older and way more feminine. I'm going to give you a little anecdote from my life. Uh, you'll really appreciate this. My ex-wife was a, a double Aquarius, like very Aquarian. And... um we used to do these full moon hikes to this waterfall called the Nyaka waterfall. And one of the times that we did this, it was like an hour and a half hike down to this waterfall. And uh, this particular full moon hike that we did, the moon was directly over the river. You know, the moon, you know, could, there's variance in where the moon is when you get there. We sure. usually get there around like uh 2.30 or right around 3 o'clock in the morning. So the moon would be, was right over us. And we were there with a few friends and she had brought, brought her crystals. So we would all get naked and hop in the Nyaka in, in the Barasita River. And it, I just had this, it was just one of the best memories of my life because there I am looking at, at my then wife and she's, you know, totally naked in the water, cleaning her crystals as like mm. a pure Aquarius. <laughs> it's exactly like that card you're talking about, you know, like there's a ritual, there's a naked woman, you know, sh we were, we were pulling in the, the moon energy at the time. Like that was the, cause that everything was bright. You could actually hike at yeah. night with the full moon, but um, it's, That's it was beautiful. It was one of those moments and we could see the night sky, you know, the, the bright moon will occult a lot of the sky because it is so bright. Um, I, I love a, that. I have a quick question for you sure. because um, astrology really didn't start to really like take hold for me. Like where I was like, wait a minute, there is, there has to be something here until I was being trained in Ayurvedic massage. And in Ayurvedic massage, um, we're taught that we, like whenever you're working on somebody, depending on when they were born, they will have very specific tension in certain areas depending on when they're born. So for this example, like with Aquarius, Aquarians hold a lot of tension in their ankles. They usually will break an ankle or, you know, they'll have mm. a shin splints. Um, there's always something with Aquarians and their ankles, like Pisces, it's their feet. And like the way we were taught was essentially the Maseroth, like we are the Zodiac man or woman, like the whole Zodiac is in us. And I always wondered why the sun occulting that actual constellation that's in the sky at the time of our birth, why we'd actually have a contraindication from that. Mm. And I was wondering in your mind's eye, like, cause I know that you see things on a, on a pretty deep level. Is the sun itself occulting energy or is it focusing so much energy that you have to be processed by it? Like what, oh. what do you think? What do you think it would be? That's really interesting. Um, you know, 
just in terms of my personal research as of late, this idea of the sun occulting things um, is really coming up to the surface for me. And just the idea that light can be blinding. Um, and so there's a number of things I've been thinking about lately with that. So I'm inclined to say that that is where I'm leaning towards. But um, I haven't thought about this in a little while. And um, I know Manly P. Hall in his work, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, I've read this entry so many different times. But he says that in actuality, under a geocentric perspective, that we are in the opposite sign based on kind of some of what you're saying here mm -hmm. um, that, you know, in a heliocentric worldview under a tropical system, you know, right now we are still in uh, Scorpio, but under a geocentric perspective, he says that we actually are in uh, Taurus right now or at the, at the tail end of Taurus, which is the sign opposite of Scorpio. Mm -hmm. So there is this kind of conversation to be had about where the sun is and then um, what sign we're actually in. Are we in the correct sign? Then it makes me wonder, too, does, it, does that mean then we're in the opposing age? You know, there's a lot of talk about the age of Aquarius. Are we actually in the age of Leo? We're on the cusp of the age of Leo. I'm it not sure make... this isn't... That would make a lot of sense to me um, because I'm doing this really weird thing with astrology. Um, I I knew enough people, enough friends, like close friends that consciously conceive. Mm. And, and also because my body work, like the way I was trained with body work was to really pay attention to people's wiring, like where they're holding. And I, for a while I was like, wow, what your birthday is relative to the sign didn't match. So I refined it mm. and it was like, oh, well, the system I was using wasn't actually accurate. If I used an accurate depiction of the sky, then I I started using Stellarium and like being like, oh, no, no, your birth, you're not a Taurus. You're actually a Gemini or whatever, you know, that type yeah. of thing. And going that way. But then I started looking at... um I started drawing conception charts because what I started to really notice was a person like the spark of life was like, I knew mothers that knew like they would have, you know, they would be with their partner multiple times, let's say, and they knew exactly when the conception occurred. They knew the difference in their body. That's how attuned they were to their bodies. And some of them would even tell me like they could feel the soul, like all these different things that like are pretty intimate details. Mm. So that really made me wonder. And I just used it as like an experiment in my mind. Then in, in being turned on to a bunch of information from creditors, I know where they were talking about in the law, if you identify with your birthday, you're, you're out, <laughs> you're, uh, you're flotsam, you're jetsam, you're not, you're mm. not considered a living being. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, wait a minute here, there has to be something to this. And then um, a friend of mine who's an astrologer, she sent this whole opus from the Rosicrucians to me. And the Rosicrucians did did this thing. They did conception charts. And they did, like, depending on, like, the information that people would get, they would do this thing where it was, like, between 260 to 280 days. You know, you kind of had to have some intimate knowledge of, of the backlog. But you've this is the start. 
And this is all this information was coming to me and it was, it, it made so much sense to me because of this, um, what's the word for when, uh, like a word that the way it starts is the way it ends. What's that called? Mm. Um, I'm not sure what you're referring it, to. It's now. uh, it's like even like the word tenant. It's T E N E T. Oh, it's, is it a palindrome? Palindromes. Yeah. And I'd been seeing like ever since my study of the I Ching, because the I Ching was the way I did divination, and like the I Ching is palindromic. Like when you mm, look at the yes. the sim the symbols, and like it reminded me of sports because I had all these coaches are like the way you start a race is the way you finish a race. And, you know, and I've seen that, like there, there's always this arc mm. in things. And so I had this whole thing with like, okay, there is like these mothers are telling me when life doesn't begin for their child, like they're having this intimate relationship the entire time the child is there with child. So right when you come out of the vagina doesn't mean that's like when you started. And there's multiple right. cultures that think you're one year old when you're born. <laughs> and that makes so much sense to me. So I'm, I'm, there's something with this. I don't even know how I got, got off on, on this tangent, but in, in your studies, in the, in the symbology of it all, do you see things as being palindromic? Do you see like, do you see like with the when you're doing your tarot and like when you're actually, oh, tell, jump in. Absolutely. Tell me. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. Um, you know, I, I think that though, as you're talking about things and, you know, discussing childbirth and everything else, I think it's interesting as an example, this whole idea of uh, coming from, maybe the cosmic waters and returning back to the cosmic mm -hmm. waters, you know, mm -hmm. um, one of my favorite decks, which is the Thoth deck, he actually puts death at the bottom of the ocean, which I think is really appropriate. And the traditional Hebrew correspondence with that card is uh, none or noon, N-U-N, which means fish, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, when you're about to be born, right, the water breaks, and I'm inclined to think that there must be some sort of similar thing happening on the other side when you cross over. And so uh, I think everything is essentially pretty much cyclical. Uh, you start the uh, tarot with the fool card. It's mm -hmm. the path of the fool. Um, but you end up at the universe card or the world card to start right back over again, right? So mm -hmm. definitely there's this spiraling sort of effect or there's this cyclical sort of nature, seemingly a toroidal sort of thing with everything, you know? Um, yeah. There's an album I'm listening to right now, and one of the lyrics is, is this the end or is this the beginning? You know, and I'm like, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great line. <laughs> and yeah. so endings are beginnings, you know, deaths are, are, are births, you know, there, every death is a symbolic rebirth. And so for sure, I, I can definitely get in line with all of that stuff. So that's where I was going. Like, well, you're talking about whether we're looking at this from a, from an age perspective, like whether or not we're in Aquarius or we're actually, you know, in the opposite side of the chart. And it's a lot of times when you're casting somebody's, um, when you're casting, let's say their conception, it's, you know, usually about nine and a half months before their birth, you know, so mm. the people get really attached to like their, 
image of like i'm this and then when you show like the other side of it and you see especially after the saturn return it's like well actually the way you started is this way and now that you're after your worldly you're you're breaking through your worldly conditioning as an adult and choosing for yourself now you're actually diving into how you started like mm-hmm. how you were preconditioning it's a right. very interesting study and 100% I've, yeah i've uh in your opinion, like what age are we in? Like, do you, do you look at it that way at all? Like, do you, have you. Yeah. I haven't really, um, kind of put my sort of like, um, foot down with that one and, and, Mm -hmm. and, and kind of like claimed an age. Um, to be honest with you, I'm way more interested in this symbolic age business. And so, um, to me, that is kind of something that I can wrap my head around based on my studies and everything else of mm-hmm. thinking that w- regardless of what age it is, if we're dealing with say an, uh, an astrological sign, is it Aquarius or Pisces still, or, you know, Leo, all of these signs are around the path of the ecliptic. So right. they're all related to the sun. And so astrology as a study, this might be a bold claim, but you know, as old as it is, um, I kind of look at astrology and I look at these signs as actually a, perhaps a newer tier of deity, a newer tier of God. And this is something that I've gotten into over the last year or two is just really appreciating the fact that a lot of gods, a lot of the symbolism associated with uh, these different gods has to do with how old they are. And there are different tiers of gods and deities. Mm-hmm. And from what I've gathered, uh, a lot of the stuff having to do with solar symbolism. If you look into a book, uh, a symbolism book, um, depending on when it was published and, and who wrote it and everything else, they're going to seemingly attribute everything to the sun, everything solar based. Oh, the wheel is a solar symbol. The swastika is a solar symbol. All of these things are solar symbols. Um, in my opinion, there's been this sort of flip or transition from polar to solar. Mm-hmm. And so, um, kind of thinking in terms of these three great symbolic ages is something that I gravitate towards more so Um, in terms of the actual like constellation age that we're in. um, I'm interested in that for sure. And I think that there's a lot of brilliant people who have lots of interesting information about all of that, but that's not something that I personally feel like, um, you know, that's my expertise or, or anything Mm -hmm. like that. So basically I'm pretty open. (laughs) What about yourself? Well, looking at it, like you frame that perfectly, because that was a question I asked myself when I was a child was like, why are we only paying attention to those 12 constellations? I see so much more up there. (laughs) You know, there, there's so much more up there, like why these 12 and then learning the whole thing with, okay, this is the plain ecliptic. This is where the sun is, yada, yada, yada. In that solar framework, um, the everything that I actually see is that we're still in the age of Pisces Mm. and we're in the 11th house of Pisces. So there are so many Aquarian overtones. So, you know, I think people like when they're like, Oh, we're in Aquarius. I could totally see why people are in that frame framework because the 11th house is the house of Aquarius. It is like the house of community and innovation and forward thinking and all these things. And so um, I I get it. I I understand that. But I really like what you just brought up about none. 
you know, mm. having, you know, the everything ending up at the bottom of the sea, like the, 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 you know, Pisces is the two fish that are kind of swimming in like, a, depending on which symbols you look at, mm-hmm. they kind of are doing like the yin yang thing in a lot of sim- symbology that I've seen. They're yeah. swimming in opposite directions. And so, um, or you could say they're swimming towards each other, depending on, you know, there's so many ways of looking at it. Right. But, um, there's this whole energetic with it that, you know, whenever you get into permaculture or anything with dealing with agriculture, it's an axiomatic saying, like, it all ends up in the ocean. Like, everything if water touches it, it's going to oxidize. And at some point it's going to be at the bottom of the ocean. So there's all the ka, like all like the, Mm. whatever the material energy is in whatever in physicality ends up at the bottom of the ocean. Right. Right. 100%. I love a lot of sense. I love that as, as being something that would be exalted in the age of Pisces, because mm. there are so many water overtones in, in, you know, we have all these air overtones because we're in the 11th house of Pisces. And for those of you out there that are unfamiliar with astrology, the, there's 12 houses um, that are there. They essentially give like an overtone to whatever uh, constellation is, is uh, near them. And the 11th house always has to do with commu- like a broader communication, friend groups, communities, um, you, how you're actually perceived by the community. Um, and it has a lot of electrical themes. And yes. <laughs> if there isn't anything like that we've seen in, in, in at least in my lifetime, it's like that's that's what we're in. Like that's exactly what we're in. But then we have the weight of these Abrahamic religions. You know, we have the these things that are like these greater contextual bubbles that are much more Piscean, <laughs> are much more this like, you know, adversarial. When I say adversarial, it's just like literally looking in the in the opposite direction it's almost like the male female dichotomy like i was teaching when i first met my wife i was telling her i was like you and i are trying to get to the center but we see it completely differently because we're looking at it from a totally different direction that's this male female thing and now we don't fight as much because we both know that we have a center that we're trying to get to we just see it from a from a totally different vantage point well, right. that can be inflamed in Pisces. Like if you're in the first house of Pisces and you're both seeing it totally differently and you're both full of piss and vinegar, while you're in the in in the house of or while you're in the house of Aries, hey, war is gonna happen. There's gonna be extreme conflict. And so there's all these things that I, I see as these the the Abrahamic religions as a whole to me really, you know. Jesus from a symbolic perspective, you know, the Jesus fish. Like I always wondered that when I was a little kid, the Vesica Pisces, 
Mm. <laughs> like now I put a vesica Pisces in every single one of the domes I build, you know, as a door. Like I love doing the vesica nice. Pisces. But the the whole thing with Jesus was like he's the like if you have a Venn diagram of two different perspectives, they overlap and then the third is created. And That's that third the third is the vesica Pisces. And so that is this Jesus fish. This is that thing that we're in. And so what do they say the the realm is covered in right now is mainly water. It's like 78% water. Right. <laughs> and I've been Mandela affected. Like maps have changed. <laughs> maps have right. changed so much to me. It's like, you know, when I was growing up, there was a North Pole that was like ice. Now there's no North Pole. Now, like when you look at maps, there's so much more water and like the displacement of the land. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, could there be anything more symbolically watery than like your your maps actually changing? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. I love that. Um, real quick, just regarding Pisces. I think it's fascinating in the fish, the ichthys fish or the Jesus fish, right? You see that on the glyph of Virgo, which is the sign opposite Pisces. Exactly. Right. And so uh, that M to me, it's like mother and Mary and matrix and all, all of these different things. Mm -hmm. M is a very feminine letter. You know, it's mm -hmm. more internal uh, mm, when you say it, your mouth is closed and everything else. But uh, I, I love the uh, polarity between Pisces and Virgo. There's lots of interesting information there. Um, as with all of the pairings, you know, in the Zodiac, that's something yes. that I really try and promote is like, if you want to learn more about Aquarius, then look at Leo. If you want to learn more about Pisces, actually look at Virgo. There's whole myths that relate to uh, this pair, I think, because when one is rising, the other is falling. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing I was going to say is regarding Pisces too, you've probably noticed this before, but the Pisces glyph is very toroidal. And so to me, it's almost like you're looking at the cross section of a toroid and then that line in the middle, which symbolically is said to be what connects the two fish. And so I think it's interesting that the two fish, as you mentioned already, uh, do relate to our feet and they are connected, right? They're connected mm -hmm. to our body. And so it's almost like a split stream sort of idea. This split stream sort of concept is really prominent with Pisces. And when you look in the heavens, when you actually look at Pisces, it's a big V, right? So it's two fish kind of splitting off uh, it's almost like the monad splitting, you know, and becoming two. Um, but the fact that the Pisces glyph has that dash in the middle, it to me, this is pretty much the plane of inertia. Yes. So I see a lot of toroidal symbolism in Pisces. And the fact that Pisces is the last sign as well, and you're talking about going this way or that way, or this polarity sort of idea or duality, um, the Taurus field itself, you know, if you're just looking at it from one aspect i suppose you know it's projecting and then it's also receiving yeah. right so there's this kind of white hole black hole sort of dynamic going on there and so and the nice thing too is like when you know body mechanics like whenever you're walking one foot is forward the other one's backwards mm, nice there's yes. all there's always a counterbalance and so pisces rules the feet and so that like that is <laughs> my wife and I are both Pisces. I'm like Pisces Aquarius cusp. She's triple Pisces. And you mm. should see our feet. Like you talk about the sun occulting energy through the feet. Like there it's crazy. Um, Interesting. The there's a very incredible thing that that brings me to because the movie contact, 
I, I'll admit it. The movie Contact taught me to look at all symbols in three dimensions. Mm. Um, uh, that movie like blew my mind when I first saw it. Like that was such like a like a, a epiphany moment in that movie. And then I started like back in the day when I was really into pyramids and I'd look at all these glyphs and stuff like that. One day I was looking at the glyphs and I kind of like pulled myself back and I saw it in three dimensions. And I was like, that's a, that's a, that's a, that whole, that's not just like little things. That's like a whole, that, that whole thing should be seen as one symbol. And that's actually like the way a computer chip looks like that's like a city grid in the way I saw it. And, um, one of my favorite uh, mathematicians, this Japanese mathematician, he was looking at, I forget which mandala it was, but he saw it in two, he saw it in three dimensions and it become it became the dome structure. It's actually a pentagramal pentagonal dome structure, which reminded me of when I was a little kid because when we used to play soccer, the old soccer balls, were essentially a bunch of pentagrams mm. <laughs> that were all sewn together. You know, I remember right. as a little kid looking at all these little like like five sided shapes, and it, I was always amazed that there would be sharp shapes that would actually create a sphere. Right? It's yeah, nuts. exactly. Yeah, so yeah, you, that that's awesome. So you brought up the whole thing with the the plane of inertia, which I'm totally mm. into. And this is really the juice that I wanted to get get from you. So the Pisces is these two arcs, and then you have a line that goes through it. And so you're saying that line that goes through it is the dielectric plane of inertia. That's like the plane that everything comes and slows down and gets to, gets to have a temporal experience, right? Well, what if you were to turn that and go like this? I bet you it'd be a circumpunct. That's right. Yes, exactly. 100%. Yeah, I mean, as you were talking about this three-dimensional shift with 2D shapes or whatever, looking at the circumpunct, that was one thing that I was going to bring up today is changing it into a 3D sort of object in your mind's eye, yeah. acknowledging that that dot in the middle uh, may very well just be a pole, right? And so right. this is a big part of my research is polar symbolism as it relates to uh, the polar axis or or the world axis, which in my opinion, might as well refer to as the cosmic axis. Um, so my research has led me to the conclusion that there is this symbolic bridge between realms and it exists in the center or the north of this plane of reality. And this point in the heavens is indicated with the pole star polaris right so this pole from the north pole to the pole star and this has been looked at as the stairway to heaven uh the ascension point to other planes of existence uh, many 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 different things but to me the circumpunct is one of these symbols where i believe that it has more of a polar northern origin and over time actually became solarized and so Oh, I see you're sharing your screen here. Yeah. The guy yeah. should the guy should Please. have punked. Yeah, exactly. So it's really it's a symbol that means so many different things. It's almost like what angle do you want to discuss it at? 
And so it's been referred to as the Godhead. Um, to me, that dot in the middle, right? You're getting into dot symbolism, which is actually very, very deep. Um, it's been said that the dot or the center is uh, where everything emanates from and returns to. So there's this sort of um, genesis concept with the circumpunct. To me, it's a map. Um, of this plane, as as you mentioned already, which I think is fascinating, um, it has to do with your inner self or your uh, the still point within. To me, once again, it it appears as though this dot could also just represent Polaris and the stars that circumambulate around the pole star. So circumambulation is a really really important sort of symbolic motif, I think, to understand. At least it has been for me in that so many cultures have this reverence for their sacred center, for their holy sites. And then they visit it, you know, during a pilgrimage, and then they go around that sacred center, like in Mecca, right? You go to the Kaaba cube and you circumambulate it, I believe counterclockwise seven different times. Mm -hmm. And there's many rituals like this all over the world. And so I think when you're looking at the circumpunct, definitely circumambulation is something to discuss. Um, and this reminds me of the circumpolar constellations, Ursa Major and Minor, that go around, once again, the pole star, seven stars each, um, and all of that. But it really is a, a very deep glyph, a very deep sigil that you can really, there, there's endless discussions to be had <laughs> regarding you, the circumpunct. I, I completely concur. Uh, I have had this experience before in the way, I think I sent you a message a few months ago. Um, it was deep in meditation one day and I felt, so in the Kriya Yoga and the Raja Yoga that I was trained in, the your Shashumna is your cord like to, to your creator. It's the silver cord. Mm. And if you were to follow that silver cord up and look down from, say, heaven, heavenly perspective, that would be the dot in the middle. Mm. And then your, right. your experience, your, your field of experience is the circumpunct. You are the center of your experience at all times. And right. that, that dot is the axis mundi because the axis mundi is your your jurisdiction with your creator that is your cord that is your connection and so um i find it just an amazing amazing thing like i'm i'm of the opinion if this is a a somewhat physical hologram that we're in god's hologram that there is a a a due north which is center <laughs> and um have you have you had the opportunity to study ring magnets at all uh a little bit actually um more more so magnetism in general but um you'll have to enlighten me okay so you're you're i think you're about to have your panties drop <laughs> so i hope so <laughs> so let me uh let's see if i actually have I have tons of magnets like right around me. So I'll just show you this ring. So if this was a ring magnet, a true ring magnet, what they do is they center it where all of the electricity on the outside goes to the center. Mm. 
So it would polarize the outside as south, and then it, the inside would be polarized as north. Most of the cheap ring magnets that you get, you look at it from the side angle, and it looks like a bar, right? Like, mm -hmm. so it would just be a bar, and the top would be north, and the bottom would be south. Oh. But a true ring magnet is called radially centered. So I don't know how they do it, but they take a, sh they shock, they send the electricity through to the center. So there's a really interesting thing that occurs when that happens. When you have all the energy of north going towards the center, mm. guess what it does? On the vertical plane, it creates scalar north, mm. which is the exact diameter of the ring in height from the top. Wow. That scalar north has 40 times the power that the actual, the, the magnetism on the inner edge of north has. Mm. So how do they make plasmas? In, in a controlled lab setting, what they do is they take very strong magnetic fields and they force them together. And wherever they force them together, they'll end up having a, a conglomeration of this fourth state of matter and they electrify it and that's a plasma. And wherever mm. they move the magnetic field, will determine what happens to the plasma. Isn't that amazing? Gotcha. That's incredible. Yeah. No, I love that, dude. That That is fascinating. Um, so, so, you, you mentioned 40 times just real quick. Do, do you know the math behind that and why 40 times? That, I that's don't. kind of a curious thing. I don't. The gentleman that taught me this whole system, John Bedini, he was a master with materials. He could make mm. uh, solid-state batteries. He, back in the day, I think in the 70s, his company, his amp company was a bespoke amp company where instead of using uh, vacuum tubes and transistors, they used crystals. So he had total knowledge of piezoelectricity and conduct conductivity through different geological mediums. Mm. Gotcha. Absol absolutely super, superstar. And he was so like, such this like like just common sense brass tacks dude like mm. i got every piece of his literature that was ever written about him every single one of his workshops i bought <laughs> and i'm such a, a doofus when it comes to electrical things it like it like he literally rewired my brain mm. but with wow. magnetics What's relevant to what we're talking about is this whole thing with the circumpunct. Scalar north is the circumpunct. Mm. That's what it's called. It's called scalar north. So as soon as like the whole flat earth thing started to come on the scene in 2015 mm -hmm. and people were starting to like really get into it, I like I I almost shit myself because I was like. <laughs> That's a ring magnet. What they're what they're describing, I don't think it's as physical as as people want to make it out to be, 
well, let's just say for this argument that it is something physical, that yeah, like we literally have this 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 pole, the South Pole. Now we know why compasses act the way that they do. Right. And there is something, there's some sort of energetic thing that is always wanting to point to the center. It's always exactly. pointing to the center. That makes so much more sense on on this model than it does, uh, you know, we're on a ball that's mm -hmm. spinning. If it was spinning, we'd have centrifugal force, which meaning everything that was on the surface would be like flying towards the sky, but nobody wants to talk about that. But the whole thing is, is like, why does everything always want to point to the north? Why does it want to point to the center? Mm. What is attracting it to the center? Right. And so in the higher magnetics, in the higher schools of magnetics, they get into the whole um, showing that what we are shown with bar magnets as kids in school is totally inaccurate. Because when you see a bar magnet, you're actually seeing, and then they put the iron filings. Mm, the time yeah. the iron filings are around the bar magnet, each one of those iron filings becomes its own magnet. So you don't, oh, right. you don't actually see a true magnetic field that way. You're seeing multiple magnets sticking together. That's right. what you're actually seeing. So there's Dr. Floyd Sweet and Bedini. They actually mapped what a true magnetic field looks like. And guess what it looks like from the top? Circumpunct, right? Circumpunct. But yeah, yeah. you have one dominant, you have one dominant scalar north, and then you'll have a, a, a scalar south. Or let's say it was radially centered where south was going to the inside. Then you'd have a dominant scalar south and then a, a weaker north there was always two so which again you know when you look at the like my sister's a, a an artist a professional artist and she always taught me to look at the negative space or the space that isn't being colored in or characterized and actually see that as a character so when you see a circumpunct even if you just saw a line and a dot, there's actually a third character, which is the the negative space within the ring and then the dot. So to me, I, I'm I'm seeing like a pure representation of like the perfect magnetic field from cool. somebody from somebody who knows what a, a what a real magnetic field looks like. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, you're speaking my language, man. This is brilliant stuff. Um, and your sister's totally spot on with that. I always, earlier on when I started talking about this information online, I always used to say that, uh, it seems like seemingly a lot of things symbolically go back to poles and holes, which was back <laughs> to the principle <laughs> that you just brought up, you know? Um, and it's kind of funny. It relates to some of what we talked about earlier. It's like, when I look into feminine symbolism, you're going to find the masculine. That's what I find. You know, when you look into masculine symbolism, you're going to find the feminine. And the tarot likes to play with this all day long, too, by the way. Mm -hmm. So as an example, you know, like the hermit card, you see an old man with a beard 
you know, but yet it's ruled by Virgo, you know, a virgin, a maiden, a young yeah. woman. Right. And so uh, they they play with this all day long, these kinds of inversions or whatever. And sometimes it's kind of confusing. But when you realize that when you look deep enough into, you know, the positive, uh, you're going to get into negative symbolism and then vice versa as well is how I tend to see it, you know. Um, but, yeah, the circumpunk, too, uh, it reminds me of a lot a lot of uh, relating to your work with domes and everything else, you know. Uh, the circular structure of a home and the traditional circular structure of a home and having that hearth, that fire in the middle yes. of the home. Mm -hmm. You know, my understanding, there's this great book that I read called At the Center of the World by John Michel. And he gets into um, northern polar symbolism, like very heavily uh, with a lot of different tribes around Europe. And he talks about this um, idea of a sort of concentric ringed uh system where the middle of their village or of their town had this sort of sacred center had some sort of temple or a mound or a tree or something like that and they believe that this was kind of their uh their holy site right their their pilgrimage site but mm -hmm. they live locally right and so they would congregate there create new laws they would uh, have different sort of gatherings and festivals there and seemingly everything radiated out from that center right kind of reminds me of like tree rings or reminds me of like ripples or something along these lines um but that center point was considered the ascension point you know this is what is really rooted into your ancestry and tradition and things like that and actually that's one of the big things that the world axis symbolizes it symbolizes tradition its stability its structure you know there's order and so um as it relates to kind of like this um sacred center aspect of 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 your land um it gives you something to revolve around symbolically right just like the circumambulation thing mm -hmm. so it gives you kind of a point of focus it gives you something to kind of um stand behind or stand up for it's kind of symbolically your backbone um in in one of the chapters he talks about these different tribes and they, for whatever reason, their sacred center location was destroyed or lost or something along these lines. And this was like the beginning of the end for them, that yeah. they had they had lost their way. So they don't they literally did not know what to do with themselves because that point was lost. Um, but the idea that he references multiple times is that they looked to the heavens and they saw the stars going around one star in particular, and it was the pole star. And they figured, if that dynamic of circumambulation of what look kind of looks like a circumpunct, if that dynamic is good enough for the gods, it's good enough for us. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of cultures that had this sort of concentric ringland system, I think of Lord of the Rings, Lord of the <laughs> Ringlands, right? Um, they also thought too that if this is good enough for the gods in the heavens, this is also good enough for our home. And so having a circular structure with that sacred fire in the middle was supremely important. And it wasn't just for no reason that there's a million and one reasons why they would do this, including like a cosmological or cosmographical sort of reason um, related to your dome stuff, which I find really, really fascinating. And I'd love to talk about that for a little bit, too. Yeah, I I developed Tico Dome, um, my company in Costa Rica around an actual, I, I call it, it, it's a tropical ecodome configuration. I don't know if I actually have on my website the uh, layout that I normally do 
for these. Uh, let me let me share a screen real quick here. Sure. Um, so oddly enough, on my I'm such a bad web designer. On my uh, on my Tico Dome page, I don't actually even have a dome. <laughs> I have, <laughs> have that removed. In yeah. Okay. So this is a Tico dome right here. And I put these massive spirals. I'm actually, I'm not seeing it for some reason. Oh, because I didn't hit share. There we go. There you go. So here is a Tico dome. So the dome, it's a hemispherical dome in the middle. And just like you're talking about with the, the, those tribes people is that the idea is that you have a circle within a circle within a circle. I'm very big into this notion of perfect nesting. Mm. Um, I've dealt with machines that perfectly nest. I've been in homes and structures that perfectly nest. All these different temples and cathedrals I've been in, they always perfectly nest. And what that means is you'll have a shape that's repeated at a very specific proportion. Mm. And when that shape is repeated in a in a specific proportion, there's an energetic that is imbued in that space that is is a vitalizing energy. And so my Tico dome concept was I really like domes because they're extremely resilient to earthquakes and storms, all the type of stuff that we we're dealing with in the tropics. But domes are kind of ugly. <laughs> <laughs> if they're just by themselves, they're just like a, a boob or like a mound or something. And it wasn't really appropriate in an area that would get, you know, you know, seven, eight meters of rain a year. So I put these spiral roofs on top of them. Mm. And it's called a reciprocal roof. And then I could span out around the dome itself and add a bedroom, add add kitchens and bathrooms and you know utility spaces but then you would have the center space be like this great room and so this is like the, the you, you can see all the pentagons and the pentagrams that make mm -hmm. up like this structure literally only has 15 bars of of metal that are overlapping at a very specific ratio that gives you this geometry and it's amazing like when you're in the space you just immediately just like drop and um i had been kind of turned on to domes as a little kid but the guy who like really pushed me over the edge with it was victor Shawberger, because Shawberger said the best way to store your water was in an egg and an egg is just a hemispherical dome, which is the, the female component with a lancet arch dome connected. And that's the male component. And that's why he said the egg in nature is used because it's the combination of the male and female energy. And you never have a dead point with the circulation in it. Like at no point, like you put anything in an egg whatever's inside the egg will continue to circulate ad infinitum mm. because of that shape. So there, he called it a, there's always a dynamic disequilibrium and that dynamic disequilibrium is life because <laughs> life is movement. And like, so 
you know, um, I love the the term that Crow Triple Seven uses. Like, there's no angles of sorrow, like in mm -hmm. an egg. You know, in a right. box, you have eight vertices, you have eight corners. So I was really big into water management and like, okay, how can I store water without using chemicals? Well, if you put it in an in an egg shaped uh, um, container, the water is constantly moving. Well, we live in a fluid air's a fluid right right and so yeah. domes it's amazing they take one tenth the energy to cool because there's no stagnation they take one tenth the energy to heat they take one sixteenth the energy to bring to a temperature that you want so you know like you have a big square building or whatever and you want it to be 70 degrees and it's 90 degrees it takes a certain amount of time to bring that down you know it's because the flow of the air sucks <laughs> when you <laughs> yeah. look at all these buildings that are like marvels they all have a wonderful flow the air has a flow like there's a there's a um airport that was built on this man-made island in japan where I forget the name of the airport, but they've made the whole building a spiral and it only has one air vent. Because they figured if we just wow. put if we just blow the air right here, it's going to spiral through the entire structure. And mm. it's like it's one of the most efficient uses of of conditioned air in the world. And they use the spiral to do it. <laughs> So Amazing. I'm in love. Yeah. I, I'm in love with like the perfect nesting component treated things and the dome and like using these like hemis like it's all it just makes so much sense. Like nature does. nature does not use straight lines and she doesn't do anything in two dimensions. So that's <laughs> that's why like you know when you see a two dimensional symbol like immediate immediately in your mind pop it into three dimensions. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's a good pro tip. No, this is beautiful, man. I, I love it. When I first heard you talk about your work, uh, my mind was blown to the depth that you go to 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 create these uh, structures for people. And just the thought and the care and everything else that you put into it um, with materials and everything else. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, you, you know, it, it is efficient and it does make sense. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Um, and that's one of the things to me, one of the powers of learning about um, polar symbolism, northern symbolism, sacred center symbolism, is that it is it's so empowering and it really has a lot to do with um, bringing things in to self, but also bringing things into you like locally. Mm -hmm. What I see in, in kind of the solarized world we live in, obviously, uh, they want you to be on the grid. So we have to, you know, bring electricity into the home. We have to bring water into the home. We have to do all of these different things from the outside and bring it in. But I think with kind of this polar sort of paradigm that I found myself in, it actually has to do with uh, kind of generating energy from within. Um, I, I think that a lot of the things when people talk about um antiquitech and kind of like tartarian technology and, and things like that i tend to see a lot of polar symbolism in a lot of this stuff yes I, I tend to see that there seems to be this direct connection between some of the stuff that i'm looking into 
um, and and how energy is actually generated and how it's it's more about this very like hyper localized sort of thing. Um, and so when I think of the dome and I think of how efficient it is, it just makes me think about all of this stuff. And so that's why I'm really passionate about a lot of this uh, information, too, is because I feel like it's brought me closer to self and really uh, polar symbolism in the north. Um, to me, this is how geocentric people saw things. You know, um, mm -hmm. I think that they had more of a reverence for the earth, you know, uh, for the soil underneath their feet. Um, they didn't have to preoccupy themselves with, you know, a war around the world or with anything that might be happening that that is incredibly distant from them. You know, they were concerned with, um, you know, their ancestry, their tradition, their people, their community or whatever you might want to say. And it has more to do with generating from from kind of where you're at. And yeah. it's really uh more so about abundance over scarcity as well and realizing how much potential and how much energy there is um, and how the universe truly provides, right? Yes. And that's another thing in the hermetic school of thought is winter is a condensation of energy. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm not saying that we've all, I, I don't think that the, what we consider to be the center of the dielectric plane has always been cold. But it is the condensation mm. of energy. There is this massive amount of energy that is being, you know, essentially pushed through that area. And mm. I always take whatever the mass conditioning is and I go the opposite way. So if they tell us, oh, we're all uh -huh, out right. of Africa, I'm like, Negro, I'm from the North Pole. <laughs> <laughs> Like, right, right, right. Uh, I, I'm not I'm not an equator person. I've lived by the equator for a very large part of my life. And the second I get to the northern climes, I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Because it's, right, right. it's a totally different energetic. Like when you get near the equator, it's a diffuse energy. And like mm -hmm. when the further north you go, it's a much more concise energy. And you actually, right. and you see that with the people, you see that with the cultures. Like, yeah, I think the Norwegian, I think uh, the furthest north I've ever been is Norway. And those people are like, so on it, like concise, like, mm -hmm. like, and, <laughs> and I've lived near the equator and those people are not, they cannot do math to save their life. <laughs> Nowhere. <laughs> it's like, That's what are true. The, what are numbers? <laughs> what are these right. abstract things that count stuff? I have no idea. <laughs> yep, exactly. I wonder too, um, do you think that this is kind of shown in, in the alphabets from different peoples around the world too? Um, I, I tend to see that, um, I guess, hotter climates, it seems as though the, the letters seem to be more ornate and decorative and there's almost more... Um, sort of play i suppose with how you actually uh you know write these alphabets versus i think of like a northern like i think of like the runes and how they're very just like you know a couple of lines you know and they're all just straight lines there's no curvature to it as well what's well, so the big gloves kind of... it's the big gloves you have to wear when you're north like you can't do calligraphy when you're wearing these huge snow gloves 
right <laughs> yeah well and you can't uh you can't carve things into wood and you yeah, can't yeah. like uh there's a million different things you can't do yeah it's like you're cold man you're like geez let, let's get to it let's let, let's make a fire i'm not going to be right. making pencils out of this wood i'm going to be lighting it on fire this is kindling um totally totally there is that you know they do like from what I'm not, I'm not a linguist. I'm I'm not anywhere. Like I listen to like Chance Garten and all those guys and sure. Dylan Sicoccio talk about everything with language. I'm sort of a retard with all that. Mm -hmm. um, I, from a very practical perspective, the further North you are, I think the more your time is actually precious. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it, it would make sense that there there would be more attention um, to something that's direct, quick, and the energy is going more towards consonants. Whereas uh. you get more into like the flowy, like romantic side of things, the closer to the equator you get just because you have more time because it's warmer. There, mm -hmm. there, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a real time pressure with the North right right no that makes tons of sense yeah exactly mm -hmm. um yeah this uh this whole study to me because you brought up the flat earth thing um that that's something i didn't mention but you know i was looking into um all of that when it was becoming popular i think i read one of eric dubay's like first pdfs in like 2014 or something like that mm -hmm. and i like a lot of people at first thought that maybe um this is too extreme of a concept or that th this didn't hold water for whatever reason, but I was interested, you know, I was open-minded enough to want to look into it. And so that was kind of one of the first things that I came across almost 10 years ago now, I suppose mm -hmm. that uh, got me thinking about the Northern sky. Cause I, I do remember certain things regarding, I think the, the North pole, the poles are always, uh, you know, in that community, a topic of conversation right mm -hmm. um and then uh the north pole in particular was something that i was interested in and it's kind of funny when i read that pdf i was on my way to india i don't know if you've heard this story probably not but no i was reading uh eric dubay's pdf on my way to india and he was blowing my mind and i was in a plane so i was able to look outside the window and see man you know what things do look pretty flat out there um, I don't know if I, I'm seeing this curvature at all. Um, right. And when I got to India, I was in Mumbai and this young guy, one of the first days we were there, he approached us and he wanted to uh, talk to us and he was very friendly. We ended up getting tea with him without prompting him at all. I uh, basically asked him about, I didn't prompt him with anything that I had been reading or whatever, but I asked him about his spiritual sort of background and everything else. And he said that he has a guru who teaches the flat earth model and he started schooling me on flat earth. And he goes, you know, a lot of Westerners don't realize that we actually live on, on more of a flat plane and that we have a, we live in a geocentric reality essentially. And he absolutely blew my mind with that because I hadn't brought that up at all. And then I realized, I'm like, wow, so is this really just a thing that here in the West or, you know, in a lot of parts of the world that we've been conditioned to think that things are one way, but in actuality, they're very different, you know, and um, that kind of coupled with seeing things around India, 
that made me really just like shift my paradigm and and really got me thinking about the nature of some of the symbolism. So being in another small town, I remember seeing uh, a red swastika with these gigantic uh, letters next to it, gigantic red letters that said Aryan. And they were on all of these little taxis in this town. And I'm like, this is absolutely wild. They have swastikas on their taxis and it literally just says Aryan. And so when I think about a lot of where I've come at from, um, you know, with the Northern stuff, India played a big role for me. And I think that when you go further East, it seems to me like there's more overt Northern polar symbolism, you know, kind of baked into uh, a lot of the symbols like the swastika, like the mandala, like the uh, the wheel that's on the the flag of India. To me, this is just kind of like a, a a northern polar sort of thing. To me, the mandala is all about this. You know, it's about that sacred center. You know, in the middle, and um, this kind of relates to some information that I've come across recently. Uh, I'm reading this book right now by this guy named Henry Corbin. Uh, apparently, a lot of people know who he is. I was unfamiliar with him until recently. Called the Man of Light. And the first thing he talks about in this book is that going east and this idea of like a mystical east um, has to do with actually a cosmic north sort of concept. And that literally the word oriental goes back to orientation and that you only get your orientation here um, via this sacred center, the world axis. And that the mystical North or mystical Orient that mystics have looked for for a long time, it's actually a veiled reference to the North. It's actually a veiled reference to the center, the sacred center. It's not geographically East, which I think is really intriguing. Um, have you ever heard that before by chance? That's something I wanted to ask you. This East uh, uh, is a veiled reference to the North sort of concept. In a very specific way. <laughs> So it's a combination of what I was learning in India also and mm. the hermetic principles. So when I was in India, I went to uh, a temple in the south of India. It was about an hour and a half south of their holy mountain of Tirvanumalai, which was in the province of Tamil Nadu. So it was like, if you're to see India as like a, like a big V it's like getting close to the middle of the bottom of the V. Mm -hmm. And at this temple, they said it was a thousand years old, whether it was a thousand years old or not. I don't know. Most of the things that they were telling me there, they were lying. <laughs> I come to find <laughs> it was a very, very good. They were very good at marketing. And, but what was it? It, made, it felt like it was an ancient temple and they had the 13 divas, the 13 moon divas. Mm. And I, we happened to go there like when it was a, it was a full moon and the Lord, I forget which diva it was. It was a December moon and she had her hand up and turned and that's exactly where the moon was. Mm. So this was 2004 and I was like, how is that possible? Because at that time, I believed in space and I believed in all the things, you know, mm -hmm. like I was I was a NASA fanboy. And I was just like, just like with parallax, just like moving, you know, through space and time and all of it. Like, how can this ancient structure 
that they say is this old, how can she be in alignment with the moon? Like, how is that possible? And because there were other things, like you go through the temple and they would have the adornments of the divas and the adornment of the divas were the different constellations. It was at like 99%, 98% still in alignment. Mm. And I was just like, that was a huge question mark for me. I was like, what's going on with that? And that circumambulation that you're talking about was very big there because when you went to the holy mountain of Tiruvannumalai, you would do the seven circumambulatory, you know, going around it. And so I was always wondering what that was until I got into the hermetic principles. And I was essentially being taught hermeticism through Schauberger, actually mm. channeled Schauberger. <laughs> but so, so we have the North. Let's take the circumpunct again, right? You you only have in 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 true directionality. You only have an inward movement. You have going from the outside to the center. When you circumambulate and you're going the clockwise route, you are giving energy uh, relative to the north. You're you're essentially building the the male energy from a hermetic perspective. I believe that's right. The right hand. Uh, I always I always I'm a little bit dyslexic. Uh, the right hand rule. You're you're creating a flow state where the the energetic body from the top down is pulled down and in that i believe is male from the bottom up it's the opposite direction and so depending on where you circumambulate so whenever you worship something that's your center that is your axis moon right, right yeah right and yeah. so this whole holy mountain mm. thing that they do in india like tiruvannumalai like you know, that marketing cap campaign, you're, you're okay. That's the center of your universe. That's the, that's the tent pole. That's the flag that you've planted. Now you're building this progenerative energy because you walk around it clockwise. You are now taking that center and you're projecting it out. It's going out. You're growing the, um, I guess you would say the uh, its influence. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I was so disappointed with it. I was like writing a book, like the beginning of a new religion, <laughs> because I was just seeing the marketing and all the bullshit that they were doing. Um, if you go the opposite direction, you're trying to draw in. You're trying to pull in. You're you're pull, you're you're doing the feminine aspect of attraction so it's just the polarity mm -hmm. and it has everything to do with direction so that's right. the way that's the way i see it is direction gives you the polarity and that's the way it's felt in the body when you're doing when i do polarity therapy on people is that there's a direction of the flow of energy and that tells me what how um because we all have a basic template, whether we're male or female, where energy naturally wants to move in our body. 
So if it's flowing counter to that and you actually feel which direction it's going, then you then you actually find the meridian and you go to the opposite pole and then you neutralize it. Mm, mm. Yeah. And so right. so j just to clarify, so uh because I, I see things the same way, basically, but just so we're on the same page. So going clockwise um is more expansive yes counterclockwise is is more uh in, involved it's more it's towards the center right? yes it pulls towards yeah the center. exactly yeah yeah 100 yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah right and so um because this is something that i've read too where i've heard that i believe it's in this book called the isis thesis by this woman named judy k king mm -hmm. and she translated um, some Egyptian hieroglyphs and has a lot of interesting things to say about the Northern sky. Mm -hmm. So that um, there's this idea that uh, the opening of the electromagnetic field around earth, the magnetosphere um, is the opening to the other side, to, to the duat really mm -hmm. uh, their version of the underworld. Right. Uh, which is indicated by the way, in their work with a five pointed star. So their mm -hmm. underworld, literally a five pointed star is the emblem for it. Um and so she puts it that these hieroglyphs say that the Egyptians believe that they exited this plane through this northern opening that they refer to as the horn of a great bull. Mm -hmm. There's a surprising amount of bull symbolism with the north. Uh, Ursa Major, as an example, to the Egyptians was um, known as the thigh of the bull or the thigh of Set as well. Uh, but she says that uh, they exited by going eastward and circumambulating to the north and so kind of just fits in line exactly with what you're saying mm -hmm. and then also in freemasonry i i did a presentation recently where i showed a different a few different examples of these freemasonic tracing boards and i'm really interested in the ones that have these three different pillars you'll mm -hmm. notice that oftentimes one of the pillars is associated with the sun another pillar is associated with the moon and then the central pillar is oftentimes associated with uh, an eye, like the eye of providence, mm -hmm. or a circumpunct. That's not uncommon to see the central pillar being related to the circumpunct. And they usually denote the directions on the edges of, uh, of the canvas. And this central pillar is the pillar of transcendence. So if you look at like a Kabbalistic tree life, uh, the central pillar goes above and below the other two side pillars. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's a hidden sephiroth for people who are interested in Kabbalah uh, called Doth, which is very close to death or Toth or Thoth. Mm -hmm. um, and this hidden sephiroth is the way to the root side or the night side of the tree of life, sometimes called uh, the Klippoth. And that sephiroth has always been corresponded to the north. And so there's a direct correspondence with the central pillar in the Kabbalistic tree of life, the hidden Sephiroth Doth and the North. And in these Freemasonic tracing boards, that central pillar, which sometimes has like a ladder going to the heavens or is sometimes penetrating the heavens itself, kind of like this stairway to heaven concept, um, is usually marked with East. And so I think it's speaking to kind of what we're talking about here yeah. is that it's actually a metaphor for the center for North, essentially. Yeah, I I've been fascinated with ballistics my entire but like ever since I really got into kicking a football. <laughs> so I was really good in soccer because I could kick what's known as a knuckleball. 
Mm. Like I was one of the only people in my county that could kick a knuckleball and that's where there's no rotation on the ball. So the ball oh. would do these really erratic things. So I scored a lot of goals that way as a soccer player. But in football, you want the ball to spin, especially if you're punting it, because the tighter the spin is, the further it goes. And I had a coach that was talking to me about muzzle velocity. <laughs> One day I was 14 years old. I'll never forget it. And I was so fascinated. And he's like, yeah, the tighter the spin, the higher the muzzle velocity. And I'm like, what do you mean muzzle velocity? He's like, yeah, the really good guns. Mm. When the bullet's leaving, it's spinning. And the faster and tighter its spin is, the further the bullet will go and the more accurate it is. And so right. that brings me like to the whirling dervish and all these people that do these circles and they're always moving all the ecstatic dance that I was ever a part of. Like you get into it and like, even like talking with Emily Moyer mm. and like the whole thing, like, like when you look, if you were to take a long enough time lapse of somebody that's really in the, in the vibe, in the vibe of whatever is going on, they're moving in a circle. They're always right. circumambulating, even if it's a really tight circle. And that builds your spiritual muzzle velocity. That builds this thing uh -huh. that allows the shishumna, allows you to go up the shishumna. Because we all have the silver cord, every single one of us that's alive. And that silver cord, the way you could visualize it is if you've ever seen a vortex spinning there's almost an imperceptible what looks like a straight line at the bottom of the vortex and that's where there's zero pressure in the system and that is the your silver cord that mm. is that and so like if you get into a, a high enough spin state like from from spirit i'm not saying it has to be material you are actually, it creates that levitational energy that draws one up. Mm. And that's mm -hmm. another beautiful thing that the circumpunct is showing people is that there is an up. Yes. There is Absolutely. a true, there is a true up and there is a true down. And I brought that up to a few of my friends that are like, what are you talking about? Like, like, what do you mean? It is like, you know, cause the, the whole thing with the ball dynamic is that there's no up or no down. And the way, the way I've experienced the circumpunct sweet. Oh, the, the way I've experienced all that is that, um, you, you, you hit the core and then there's a, there's an upward generation of movement, but it's not, nothing in nature travels in a straight line. Even if it appears like it's going straight, like the bullet analogy, it, that bullet itself is spinning. Right. Like the higher, the higher, the, um, I don't know all the terminology with bullets, but like um, you spend more money on ballistics that spend more. And when you talk about rail guns, this is what I really wanted to bring up because we were bringing up magnets before. In a rail gun, the, the projectile is spinning at like unfathomable rates. At least like, oh, the, yeah. 
the rail guns that I was uh, studying like back in the nineties, like they, they were like in popular mechanics. They were saying like these things had like a hundred thousand revolutions per second or something. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. And what, yeah. and, and what Schauberger said was like in nature, the, the, the organisms that knew how to actually create a spin state in front of them it wasn't that they were being propelled by pushing themselves forward. It was that the spin state actually sucked them forward. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what happens with us spiritually. So like the Christian, like, um, symbology of like being raptured and being sucked up into heaven. The way I see that is like, you get to a sufficient enough jurisdiction with your creator and you're like instantaneously there, like you're you're there, you're with you're you're drawn up. You you are drawn up. It's not mm. that there's like some tractor beam from heaven that's like <laughs> you know pulling you. It's like literally your own spiritual state. Boom! Now you're there. Right, right. That that's awesome, man. Yeah. Um. The the bullet, uh, I have the visual of like, I'm not even a 007 James Bond guy, but I know that some of the intros show the interior of that barrel of a gun and you see along the edge, you know, what's going to create that spin for the bullet, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, I had an uncle that like, he literally made, like he made his living fluting rifles. Mm. Like, like actually doing the 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 rifling of it. That's what I say. Like in my young life, whether I was punting a football, throwing a football, shooting, shooting with these custom guns that my uncle would make, it was all about how tight the spiral is. And to wow. this day, I cannot stand watching a quarterback that can't throw a spiral. Like I <laughs> I don't care how good he is. Like I'll never be a Peyton Manning fan because he always threw a duck. Like I have to see a tight spiral. <laughs> I'm sort that's of a... awesome, dude. That's that's part of your weave. Yeah, that's yeah, really cool. Yeah, I'm a snob that way, but that's just how it goes. Right, so, right. My my well, fam my family has descended upon us. I think uh, this is the start of a wonderful friendship and communication that I think we can definitely continue. For sure. Um, is there anything more that you would like to share today? Like, especially when it comes to like wrapping up our, our Northern. Uh, yeah. Expression? You know what? I, I was just going to mention real quick, uh, this spinning business. It just reminds me of the serpent around the world tree. It reminds me of uh, the caduceus, right? The, the, the twin serpents around that wand there. It reminds me of Kundalini energy, the mm -hmm. the serpent snakes, right? Uh, or the excuse me, the fire snakes around your your spine, right? Going up your chakra system and everything else. So, um, just wanted to mention that real quick because I think it's completely relevant. Just all of these things spinning up that pole, you know. I think we're called people for a reason. You know, <laughs> uh, there's uh, the theosophists. I don't know who was the first one that came up with this, but. Um, the different root races. It's been said that the first root race uh, were called Polarians, right? And it's because we just had our central pole um, and we were within kind of like our uh, egg-like energetic body, you know? And so I see a lot of polar symbolism with people. Um, 
And so I think it's kind of more appropriate to say uh, that we live in a polar system, not a solar system. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that's actually more accurate to say. Um, but no, man, that'll do it. Like you said, uh, I think this is the beginning of a great relationship. And uh, there's so many other tangents we can go on. And uh, we'll have to do that down the road sometime. But uh, thanks for having me, dude. This is really fun. Mario, it's been great. Where can people find you? Yeah, they can find me at symbolicstudies.com. So I'm all over the place on YouTube and Instagram, Twitter, things like that. But you can find all of my links at my website, symbolicstudies.com. Yeah, and I'll have that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Mario. This will probably be out in a couple of weeks, cool. probably like the first week of December. So this will be uh, right up everybody's alley by that time. Perfect, perfect. Right on, man. Alrighty, you have a good night. You too, dude. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. You ought to know Well now you You ought to know by now Party people, I hope you enjoyed Mario Garza of Symbolic Studies. This is a podcast that I'll listen to over and over again. He brought up some things at the end that really had me contemplate because there is something to word magic in puns. And the fact that we are people is really uh, interesting to me. There have been a few people within our chat, the BioCharisma podcast chat on Telegram that are very solar centric. And I had always asked the question as a child, why are we only paying attention to that one line? <laughs> in the sky because the sky is so big you know um there's so much complexity to it and so why are we just looking over there so i i'm leaning in mario's direction in the sense that uh we should instead of being you know com completely locked into a solar model um let's kind of look at the whole sky as a whole <laughs> let's be holy in a way with that, I've really enjoyed Gabe's work, um, Slick Dissident. And whenever I ask him about where he's at with what he's doing and whenever he's doing his art, he he gathers information from the entire sky, not just the plain ecliptic. Um, it's something that I've also been studying a little bit with um, one of my astrological um programs that i have called stellarium is like instead of just looking at the plane ecliptic there's other geometries there <laughs> there's geometries with all the other um aspects that are up there that that are being played out like if you start to have the symbolic literacy that somebody like you know, slick dissident or mario has when these world events start to play out it's like very obvious <laughs> that whether whether the people that are writing the scripts are just looking at these these uh, old star uh, mythos or whether the stars are or the luminaries are actually just constantly retelling their story at certain times. I don't know which one it is. I don't really care. But the cool thing that is happening is that there is a perfect nesting 
that's occurring between you know the heavens above and us here on on the uh, plane of inertia. And the model that we're coming up with is is pretty solid, I believe. And um, having the North Pole, if we were just to be materialists, uh, just be the the center and everything rotating around that, um, that makes sense. Please refer to the um, the model that Jason Laufenberg and Ronnie has put out. I've put it in the in the chat um, where it's a dipolar model of of God's holographic reality because that that explains how you know somebody south of the equator could be seeing the this the sky spinning around that pole relative to people north of the equator seeing a whole different thing the current model of um the azimuthal equidistant model that a lot of flat earthers like to uh kind of lean into um that doesn't work especially when you start to consider people that are south of the equator I've done enough celestic profiles of people that are south of the equator. Uh, <laughs> I've never been south of the equator, but I've I've looked at enough star charts south of the equator to be like, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't the the AE map does not equate. So this this realm that we're in is elegantly simple simple. And that was actually a Freudian slip right there. The this this realm that we're in is uh, elegantly simple. <laughs> and go to Mario's website, check out um, his symbolic studies, his artwork alone. Like if he didn't even have any descriptions, if you were just to go through his YouTube channel and look at the artwork look at the aesthetic that he displays, you'll understand that you're dealing with somebody that actually has a very, very wonderful um, eye, a very keen eye for detail. And he really knows his stuff. And there hasn't been one conversation that I've listened to with him where he isn't a positive influence in the conversation. So I, I can't support him enough. So go check him out. Um, if you appreciate the podcast, please support us. Uh, that'd be wonderful. We are going into a, a huge phase of growth right now. Um, I'm launching uh, my first 100% dome in the sense that I'm I'm going to build it exactly the way I've wanted to build it from the get-go. I've never done that before. I've always used other people's systems and kind of hybridized them. And, you know, um, I've, I've, I've been a, a very good hybridizer up to this point. But um, after my last visit to Costa Rica, I really feel confident that uh, how I do things and how I'm going to do things will really pave the way to um, a pretty, pretty wonderful future. <laughs> Um, but I do everything costs money. So if if you can support, uh, that's wonderful. I've been receiving just absolutely wonderful uh, analog super chats from different artists. Um, Odon33, he made me this wonderful fascies. And the fascies is just incredible. If you haven't seen or listened to my conversation with Martin Liebke, 
we uh, we got into what the fasces might be and the whole notion of perfect nesting in fractals. And uh, Martin and his lovely Cheryl, they've just been a blast to listen to. And um, we're probably going to parlay that into a good uh, time with Jason Brashears. I have a lot of questions with Calendrix and have had a ton of questions uh, with Calendrix for quite a long time. Um, pre-2012, like in 2006 or 2007, I was um, reading a bunch of John Major Jenkins books. And that got me into the Mayan cosmology and the Mayan uh, um, way of seeing their clock system. And it was beautiful reading John Major Jenkins because he wasn't on the tip of the fear or the doomsday people. He wasn't like, oh, 2012 is the end of the world at all. <laughs> he actually, it was under the under the assumption that um, the 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 calendars had weren't matched correctly like they didn't their their scale was different so he he didn't think that 2012 was going to be the end of anything um it's too bad that john major jenkins isn't with us anymore because uh, i would love to interview him <laughs> he was very methodical and critical and uh he helps me at least on that on that level of thinking, um, really decipher a bunch of BS that was being peddled by, you know, all the Esalen people, all the people that were that uh, were making a uh, a real, I guess you'd say, um, racket when it came to the end of the world being in 2012, <laughs> and there was a bunch. So. Um, to be able to talk with Jason Brashears about his way of doing calendrics, uh, the more I listen to him, the more I appreciate uh, his thoroughness. He's actually very thorough. Um, I don't necessarily believe in his cosmology, but I'm willing to learn. I'm always willing to learn, and uh, I'm always willing to have a good conversation so if you appreciate that type of, of uh, I guess you'd say research, um, you can go ahead and, you know, analog super chat. You can go to toferhq.com donations. That's always wonderful. And uh, I also have a PayPal account. It's coraldomes at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you guys soon. We have some really good interviews coming up, more music theory is going to be coming at you. I'm really excited about that. Um, one of my mentors in Aircrete, uh, I'm going to be interviewing him, Aircrete Harry. And uh, so we just got lots of like just really good folks coming on to, to make this world a better place. So look forward to hearing from you guys. Please join the chat. The link is in the show notes and we'll see you on the flip side.